Hi, my name is Jana Metzger. Welcome to the Gospel House. Our mission here at the Gospel House is to show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. That in the gospel, we can find all of our deepest needs met as the entire church responds to and applies the implications of the gospel. We would love to show it with you. Check out our website, www.thegospel.house, where you can learn more about us, find out how to connect with us, ask questions, see when and where our next meeting is, and give to help advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ. The Kingdom of Right Relationships. This is week three of our relationship sermon series. I apologize to those of you who are expecting a marriage sermon series because we're in the month of February. It's not exactly how we're going about it, but hopefully all of these principles that God gives us for right relationship are impacting our marriages as well, right? God doesn't preach just to your marriage. He preaches to you as the whole person, and then you apply those things, and it impacts your marriage, right? When we apply the implications of the gospel, it impacts all of life, right? That's why we started this church with one simple question. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ enough? That alone, if we simply as Christians live the gospel of Jesus Christ, if every day, every moment we think, what does the gospel say? How does that change the way I live? Then I don't need half of the things that the church, the church tells me that I need, right? Because I'm living the gospel every day. And so we believe that if we walk in the spirit, and that's part of the gospel, is that we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. That's what Jesus Christ bought and paid for us. If I walk that, by that spirit, by the power of the spirit, he is going to lead me into every good thing, right? It's really simple. It's really simple, but we make it complicated. So what we've been talking about this month is that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of right relationship, which means if there are wrong relationships in our lives, if there is discord, if there's disunity between a brother and sister, if you don't have a strong relationship with your spouse, if you don't have a strong relationship with a brother or sister in the church, with your family, whatever that is, that's an area of your life that you're not letting the Holy Spirit take hold of, right? Because the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of right relationship, which means that God will not lead you into a wrong relationship. So what we want to do is we want to step back and we want to look at this. See, our problem is that we're too easily distracted, aren't we? As human beings, as Christians, I'm walking along, I'm doing a good job, and then all of a sudden something, ooh, something shiny over here, right? It gets my eye, and all of a sudden I step out of the spirit, even if it's not ooh shiny, if it's, you know, somebody cuts me off on the freeway, that's not an ooh shiny, that's a ooh shiny, right? But I step out of the spirit and I step into Jeremy, right? Step into Jeremy a little too easy, Hopefully you don't step into Jeremy too easy. That's, you step into you too easy, right? But, but the goal is that we stay eyes focused on Jesus. We stay step by step with the Spirit. We stay doing things God's way and not man's way, right? Because we cannot live in the kingdom of God man's way. So week one, we talked about our right relationship with God. All of this, everything, every right relationship has to start with the right relationship with God. You get right relationship with God wrong, you, every other relationship you're going to get wrong. You will miss it. That's how it works. That's why when Jesus tells us, what's the greatest commandment? It starts with God, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's number one, and it's got to be number one. That's foundational. Next... We jumped into love your neighbor as yourself, but we said last week there's actually a differentiation that God makes between neighbors, and we're going to continue on that this week, but last week we talked about our relationship with the church. When Jesus comes, he's got these people come to him and say, Jesus, your mom and brothers and sisters, they're outside, they're looking for you, and Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Anyone who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that is my mother and my brother and my sister. Jesus draws this differentiation, doesn't he? He ups the ante. He says the blood that through, flows through your veins now as a believer in Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus Christ himself, right? That blood trumps family blood. 
your relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now remember, we said, these are people in the church. That's an uppercase C, in the church. People who do the will of God, because the problem is, we have people who come into the church and sit in the church, but they're not super interested in doing the will of the Father, are they? Right? And then we got a little uncomfortable, didn't we? (laughs) Because we talked about what is the difference in relationships, and we're going to keep breaking that down today. But there is a difference in relationships. So today, we continue on that. We're going to talk about that difference even further as we talk about what does it mean to love our neighbors. Love God? Check. Now let's love our neighbors. How do we do that? So glad you asked. Luke 10 25 to 37, the best passage on loving your neighbor in the word of God, Jesus tells us this. A lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself. Hmm, isn't that where all trouble with God starts on our end? Wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among the robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him in his own, on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hand? And he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. Go and do the same. Too many of us end the sermon right there, don't we? We don't actually take nearly enough time to look back and see what's actually going on here. Jesus says to each and every one of us, love God and love your neighbor. And we ask, who's my neighbor? Right? In other words, Jesus, what's the bare minimum I have to do to get by here? We get in a nasty habit of asking God that question, don't we? God, what's the bare minimum I can do and still be considered obedient so that I can get into heaven versus getting kicked out, right? And what's Jesus respond? What is the bare minimum that Jesus gives us here? And his answer is the same, whether you're asking who your neighbor is or how far is too far or whatever it is, his answer is always the same. What's the minimum for God? Jesus says, more than you could ever give. That's encouraging. We'll end the sermon there, right? But Jesus does this intentionally. We've gotten into this nasty habit in the Western world of of wanting everything to be practical. Break it down for me practically, Pastor. What do I have to do? And what are we saying? What's the bare minimum? But God says, Jesus says, guys, the bare minimum is more than you could ever give. I need dependence. I need you to be completely reliant upon me because I'm the only one who can do this. Y'all, if you read The Good Samaritan and you go home thinking to yourself, all right, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a good Samaritan. You missed it. You missed the entire point of the story. Everything, the Beatitudes, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, you know, whatever it is that we read in Scripture, if you walk away thinking, I can do this. Yeah, God, I got this. You missed it. 
everything in Scripture, it's kind of a beatdown, right? It's not a nice way to put it, but it's kind of a beatdown. You look at the Ten Commandments, and you look at the law and the Scriptures and all of these things, and there's an element of it that you should come to if you know the Gospel, and you should say, God, I can't do this. We talked about Peter last week, right? That was the breaking moment for Peter when Peter comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I can't do this. I will give you everything that I have, but this is where I can get. You're asking me for this agape love, and Jesus, I don't know what that is. So I'll bring you everything I've got, but you got to show me. And guess what Jesus did? The day of Pentecost happened, and the Holy Spirit fell on Peter. And all of a sudden, Peter starts to use, in, this, in the letter of Peter, we see Peter writing this word love, this agape love. But it wasn't until he was filled with the Holy Spirit that he even knew how to love that way. Guys, we've got to be dependent on Jesus. When I read this book, I don't see a practical message. I don't see practical steps to get me from stinky Jeremy to great Jeremy. I see reliance upon the Holy Spirit to get me from stinky Jeremy to made in the image of Jesus Christ. The way that I was back in the garden, right? The way that God first made Adam and Eve in his own image. That's where Jesus wants to get me. But I gotta stay in step with him. That's the only way to get there. And one of the things that we've got to do if we're going to be like Jesus is we've got to learn to love our neighbor as ourself, right? Yesterday, or last week, we talked about relationships within the church. This week, we're talking about relationships within the world. It starts with surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that surrender is a whole lot easier if you understand what God's doing, right? If you can see where he's going. So, to see that in this story, we look at first how Jesus shows us that there is a difference in our relationship with our different neighbors. Second, we see that Jesus shows us that because we have different neighbors, there has to be a different response, right? We're going to get into this, but so many times we try cookie-cutter responses, right? Well, my friend just, just lost a loved one, and so I'm going to do what I did for this friend, and that's going to make him feel all better, Never, never, it never works, right? Because every single person is different. Every person responds different. So our responses have to be different. And then finally, we look at the bar that Jesus sets. We ask the question, we want to know, how low is the bar, Jesus? How low is it? How, how low do, can I just hop over that thing, right? So we've got to know where that bar is if we ever hope to get there. So first up, let's talk about our different neighbors. Stop me if you've heard this one before. A priest, a lawyer, and a Samaritan walk into a bar. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's what it sounds like, right? That's, that's where we're heading with the story that Jesus is telling us. But that's not it at all. But here's the deal. This story rubs us all the wrong ways if we're paying attention. But we never pay attention. Those inside the church they're the ones who miss it in this story right were you paying attention you've got by chance a priest was going down on that road when he saw him he passed by on the other side priests are good guys right i mean depending on what news channel you listen to not so much but back then in the jewish world the priests are the good guys right they're the keepers of the law they've got the word of life they're the good guys priest sees someone in need, passes on the other side of the road. Likewise, a Levite, another good guy, also when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. Look, I've heard a lot of stories, or a lot of sermons preached on this parable. Y'all have probably heard a lot of sermons preached on this parable, right? Look, I'm going to break it down really, really easy, right? My father-in-law likes to say this. I stole it from him. Most of my stuff I steal from him. But he, he says this, where the Bible remains silent, we should remain silent. Isn't that an interesting concept in a world that loves to talk and fill space? But here's the thing. 
we love to speculate, don't we? Well, there was this pass between Jerusalem and Samaria where these guys, uh, who cares? Well, the priest was most likely going to temple, and had he helped this man, he would have been ceremonial. Who cares? Well, the Levite had, y'all, I'm going to spare you the details. We've all got excuses, don't we? Right? Excuses are like toilets. Everyone has one, and they all stink. That's the PG version. There's another way to phrase that, but I'm not going to do that. I, already, I wasted my bad joke on the people walking into a bar. That's as far as the pastor can go on a Sunday. But look, we speculate. We speculate, we speculate, we speculate, and we waste all our time speculating because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter why the priest didn't stop. It doesn't matter why the Levite didn't stop. It doesn't matter why the Samaritan stopped. Do you know why it doesn't matter? Because Jesus doesn't tell us. If it was that important to the story, Jesus would have told us why they didn't stop. But he doesn't. So let's stop wasting our time filling time with worthless information and look at what Jesus is telling us. Y'all, a Samaritan stopped. And most of us, now you've heard the sermon, so you know this, those of you who have heard sermons preached on this, Samaritans were the bad guys, right? So much so that there's a story in John where Jesus responds to the Samaritan woman at the well. When Jesus' disciples come back and see him talking to a Samaritan, they're all like, whoa. Uh, Peter, you going to go get Jesus and pull him out of this one? Because he's not supposed to do that. So much so that the Samaritan woman herself says to Jesus, why are you talking to me? Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans. And then Jesus goes and makes a Samaritan the hero of the story? What? Jesus? Come on! Aren't you paying attention? You guys thought I was hard on you last week. This is a bomb. Like, Jesus dropping this is like an atomic bomb. Like, I'm thankful you all showed up after last week. But Jesus doing this, nobody's coming to church next week. Jesus, are you kidding me? Are you joking? Jesus is preaching to all Jews here. This is like going to the Democratic National Convention and telling a story where Donald Trump is the hero. Right? If you sit on the other side of the fence, it's like going to the Republican National Convention and telling a story where Nancy Pelosi is the hero. Right? That's what this is. This is a bomb that Jesus is dropping. The Jews are sitting here like, time out, Jesus. We're the good guys. You forgot that. All through Scripture, we're the good guys. And Jesus says, ah. I am scripture, y'all. And the gospel says all through the word, you're not the good guy. There is one good guy, right? The gospel says, look, we don't like this. This isn't the popular gospel. We don't preach a popular gospel here. The, the real gospel says Jesus Christ is the hero. Everyone else is the villain. And it's only when you realize that that you can come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So these Jews are astounded by this. What is going on? Jesus, you got it backwards. The problem is Jesus keeps getting it backwards, doesn't he? And if Jesus keeps getting it backwards, you'd think eventually we'd catch on. Oh, maybe I'm the one who's got it backwards. I'm not the hero of this. The Jews missed it. They missed Jesus's point to this story, which makes you think, man, why was Jesus so hard on them all the time, right? Because over and over in the Gospels, we just see Jesus ragging on these Pharisees, right? He calls them broods of vipers and whitewashed tombs that look fancy on the outside, but they've got dead corpses on the inside. Whoa, Jesus. These are, these are the good guys, right? But here's the thing. Jesus was hard on the church back then. He's hard on the church now. Y'all listen to the Holy Spirit? 
I don't know, maybe I'm weird. I've told you guys this before, but if I go more than a couple days without getting corrected from the word, I've, I'm like, okay, Jesus, I, am I, what am I doing wrong here? Does the phone line get cut or something? Because like, the Holy Spirit corrects me all the time. All the time. Because I'm not the good guy. He is. And when he corrects me, he does so to what? Make me look more like him, right? Jesus is hard on the church because the church should know better. They should know better. The Jews back then, they should have known better. They had the words of eternal life. They had the law and the prophets. They had the gospel. Jesus hadn't completed it yet, but they knew what the Messiah was coming to do. They knew that a Messiah had to come. And why did a Messiah have to come? Because Jesus was bored up in heaven and didn't have anything else to do? No. The Messiah had to come because they were so messed up. The Jews knew this. But then when Jesus shows up, they couldn't even recognize him. Primarily because they couldn't recognize the sin in themselves, right? The Jews knew better. Church, we know better. Yet, the world around us is lost and dying. They have been beaten. They have been bruised. They are bleeding. They are lying by the side of the road, dying in their sins. And the priests continue to walk by on the other side of the road. And the Levites continue to walk by on the other side of the road. And the Christians continue to walk by on the other side of the road. Shame on us. Right, church? We read these stories and we think, stupid Pharisees. Gosh, those Pharisees are so dumb. They just never got it. Right? And we miss it. Because Jesus isn't just preaching to the Pharisees here, is he? This isn't to the Pharisees. It's to me. And Jesus says, Jeremy, you keep missing it. You keep passing by on the other side of the road. You are so busy trying to get to your Christian meetings and your Christian prayer rallies and your Christian worship nights and your Christian concerts that there are people who are lost and broken and dying and you are leaving them refusing to respond so that you can get to your commitments. Y'all, the world doesn't know any better. Christians are really bad, especially the Western world in the, in the United States today. We are so good at criticizing the world. So bad, oh, this world is more depraved than it's ever been, and they do this and they do this. Y'all, they don't know any better like me getting mad at Gideon for spitting up on my shoulder, right? Gideon, it's not polite to spit up on people's shoulders. He doesn't really spit up anymore because he's almost one, but you know, he doesn't know any better. We get so frustrated with the world for doing world things. And meanwhile, the church isn't doing anything to help. We're not doing anything to show them a better way. I have watched, personally watched, maybe some of you, y'all, we going to get to a point where we're, where we're strong enough to admit this? Or do we want to keep putting up our dukes and fighting anybody who tells us we do it wrong? But I have watched the world, people in the world who have no faith background at all, respond better to hurting people than Christians. Jana and I went through a season a while back where we, we were walking through some just bleh stuff, just rough stuff, and we're struggling. And y'all, I am ashamed to say it, but Jana had coworkers who had nothing to do with faith who responded better to her in her grief than people inside the church. People inside the church, it was just a, here's a Bible verse you can pray, pray through it, you'll get better. People in the world, tell, tell me, What's going on? Tell me. What happened? What can I do for you? Can I, like, just, I'll sit with you. I'll listen. I'll. Y'all, I am ashamed to say that I have watched people in the world respond to broken people better than I respond 
to people. Y'all, when are we going to weep over this? When is this going to be enough to break our hearts? You know, there's a, in the Old Testament, you know, whenever something atrocious would happen, the priests would tear their robes, right? They'd tear their robes. And I can't remember where it is. One of the Old Testament prophets, you know, the doom and gloom ones, the good ones, you know, they said, they said you know, when will you rend your hearts? When will you tear your hearts and not your garments? Saying, priests, I'm sick of you tearing your robes. It's all for show. Oh, we're so sick. <laughs> then change. Tear your heart, not your robes, not your garments. Church, when is this going to break us? When are we going to look and say, I can't do this anymore? See, today the church is harder on the world than it is on Christians, isn't it? We look at the world, oh, I can't believe they do these things. But then those in the church, it's like, oh, you screwed up. It's okay, free grace. <laughs> right? Yeah. You hit the like button, you followed our Facebook page. Yeah, you know, you're under the Jesus card now. Welcome. Do whatever you want. It's not biblical, y'all. We talked about it last week, didn't we? These are lies from Satan. These are lies from the enemy, and y'all, it's worked because we've got a dead church right now in America. And it's because Christians won't speak hard truth to one another. It's because we're harder on the world than we are on each other. You get into church and you're part of the country club, and so we can sit back and live comfortable lives. But that's not how God intended it. The Bible says the exact opposite. It says we have different neighbors. There are different levels here. Your relationship with those who are brothers and sisters in Christ is different than your relationship with those in the world. That's true, but it's not different how the world thinks. It's not different how the church thinks, and we've got to get this right. We talked about this last week, right? When we talked about sharpening with iron, sharpening iron. It's not just words of encouragement. Encouragement happens, but when we sharpen iron, it's got to be, right? It's a violent process, and it requires conflict, that's part of the sharpening process. So we've got to learn how to manage conflict properly, which is why we've got to walk out Matthew 18, right? Jesus gave us the map for it. Live this out. Correct one another, right? If Jesus thought it was all going to be sunshine and rainbows as soon as we got into the kingdom, that we were never going to need to correct each other, he wouldn't have given us Matthew 18, would he? Because <laughs> we wouldn't have any conflict that needs to be resolved, but he did, which means that he knew this was coming. Because he knows we've got to help each other become more like him. It's part of our responsibility as the church. But on the outside looking in, that looks harsh, doesn't it? So when we look at this, it's kind of like, what the heck, Lord? Like, so, so like, I've got to be a jerk to, like, my family who all loves you and does what you said. Like, you know, I've got to be mean to you, but, like, to the world, it's just like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you did whatever you want. Okay, that's cool. That's not, like, God, that's, that's wrong. I'm supposed to be mean to my brothers and sisters in Christ, but nice to the world? That doesn't make any sense. But, oh, we, and when we object, it shows that we don't understand God's love at all, doesn't it? And we talked about this last week. Because we view sharpening as unloving. When I tell you, oh, 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 oh don't do that. Jesus, Jesus doesn't want to do that. Like, when we say we're going to, do this, like, we got to do it. That's what Jesus says to do, so let's do this, right? When we correct one another, we, what? You, how dare you? Uh, but that's the most loving thing we can do, isn't it? Y'all, look, if my kids grew up their entire lives, let's pick Elam, we'll pick on him because he's the oldest, and he thought that green was red, and all through his life, I show him a green flash card, and he's like, red. And I show him a red flash card, and he says, green. And we get to the traffic light, and he's like, dad, go, the light's red. And all these things, and I'm like, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and I just let him go. I never correct him. I actually had, a, I had an old soccer coach whose parents did that to them. They never corrected them on their colors, and, and she like, was legally colorblind. 
um, because she, not because she couldn't see color, but because she didn't like she couldn't recognize fast enough like what the colors were or whatever. Isn't that crazy? But but you like and I just said that and I, I heard the gasp, collective gasp come from you all, right? Right? Because we know that's not loving, is it? It's not loving to see somebody continue to screw up, continue to get something wrong, and not correct them. Parents, parents, if you love your children, you will correct them. The absolute most unloving thing you could ever do is to let them continue to do things incorrectly. Y'all, right? A loving parent corrects their children. A loving God corrects his children. A loving husband corrects his spouse. A loving wife corrects her. You guys see it? You get it? Right? If we're going to live in unity as the church, we've got to be willing to correct one another. Don't we? I told you I was going to preach on this. I'm not going to preach on it. I'm not going to break it down and everything. But I do want to read this to you. 1 Corinthians 5. It's probably just one of the most overlooked passages in Scripture. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody preach on it. Um, probably because it's super uncomfortable to preach on. But it says this. This is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this and though I were, as though I were present. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you are assembled with I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that... His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. Now, quick pause there. Leaven represents sin throughout Scripture. So anytime you see leaven in Scripture, when they're talking about leaven versus unleavened, Leaven represents sin. So when he says, clear out the leaven from you, he's saying, get rid of the sin, right? Get rid of it. Get it out from among you. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. This is big. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders?" Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourself. You see the different responses? It looks harsh, doesn't it? Hold on, God. So you're saying that if a brother or sister refuses to be corrected, we do Matthew 18. We do all the steps. We go to them individually. They refuse. We bring, we bring two or three together and go to the person and they refuse. We get the whole church body involved and they come and they refuse. And then we boot them? That doesn't seem loving, Jesus. We kick them out? But that's exactly what he says to do, isn't it? Because you should know better. Back to the James series, y'all. Don't say you believe in God unless you're going to do what he says. This is a hard book, y'all, right? No wonder so many people don't want to follow the real Jesus. And y'all, a lot of people don't want to follow the real Jesus. That's not your burden to bear. That's his, right? 
but we have to walk out truth. God's word doesn't change, y'all. Right? What's culturally popular at this moment, what the world says, well, that's, that's intolerant, that's not, call me whatever you want. God's word doesn't change. And if you think it does, ladies and gentlemen, you got to pull on that thread. Y'all have, you know what I'm talking about? You had the sweaters, right? And your mom told you, don't pull on that thread. But of course, as soon as you got to school, you're like, I'm pulling this thread. And you didn't have a sweater when you got home, right? Because when you pull on that thread, it all unravels. You want to start playing that game? Which areas of the Bible are culturally relevant? Well, let's get rid of those. Y'all, there's no word left when you pull on that thread. If you're going to question some of it, question all of it. God's word doesn't change as much as people wish that it would. But the church today is preaching from a changed word of God. We've manipulated and we've twisted it into something that it doesn't say. I actually read an interview about this. The world today loves this flashy love, right? We want right here, right now. I read an interview with this musician, a music artist. She actually grew up as a missionary. Uh, her parents were missionaries overseas, and, and when you know, she first started in the music business, uh, she actually was a Christian artist. Like was considered, it's like not Christian, but like inspirational. You know how they do that? Or like they don't want to be labeled as a Christian, but they want to uplifting music, and so they, whatever. But she had this quote. What they were talking to her about, about her faith specifically and like why she walked away. And she said that because of faith, you don't live your best life now because you're kind of, or you're kind of working towards this end game that no one has any certainty of. This is all we've got. If there's no heaven or no hell, if there's no afterlife and we just die, we might as well start living now. Now here's the deal, church. We've got one of two options here. We can wag our fingers. We can shout her down. We can call her names. We can, what, oh my God, she just doesn't get it at all. She's of the world. You're right. Or we can show compassion. We can be sympathetic. We can listen. Now look, you guys listen to a lot of talk radio, right? Talk radio is everywhere out there. You don't have to agree with everything you listen to, right? You can listen to things and be like, nah, that's not right. But the problem, church, is that we've stopped listening. We've stopped listening to the world. And so we have absolutely no idea to respond. And so this person comes out here and says something like this, and y'all, uh, she's not the only one, right? Have you guys ever talked to non-Christians or heard interviews with people who aren't in the faith? It's what they all object to, right? Well, I don't, I don't want to give up living my fullest life now for something that I don't know whether or not it's actually going to happen or not. Shame on us, church, because we've convinced the world that to follow Jesus, we can't live a full life. That's because when outsiders look at the church, what do they see? They see a dead church. They see Christians who don't do anything who sit on their hands, who live in comfort, who don't help, who don't live the gospel. Look in the book of Acts, y'all. Do you see anybody in the book of Acts, any of these original disciples who are like, like a boring life? I don't, right? You read the book of Acts and you see guys and girls who are on fire for Jesus, who are out there doing absolutely incredible things. Where is it? Where is it? It is not. I refuse to believe that it is because when this book was finished, when they closed the pages, the miracles stopped. Well, we don't need those anymore. I don't buy it. I don't see anywhere. If that's the case, where do we stop that? When we pull that string, where do we stop? So does salvation only apply between the pages of these books? Some people think that, right? It doesn't. If God is still saving, and that's the biggest miracle of all, right? When an unbeliever comes to Jesus, if God is still saving and doing that miracle, then any other miracle in these pages, I believe, can happen. And more, and more, right? But the world doesn't see it because the church isn't doing it. 
How in the world can we let this happen? We have shown the world that the church is dead. How are they supposed to believe we're alive if we don't do what God says? How are they supposed to believe that we're, how, how are they supposed to even want what we have if we're not doing what God does, if we're not loving like God loves? Kids don't understand. The world doesn't understand. We can't correct the world like we correct those within the church, right? See, in the church, we're not, we're not concerned with the right here, right now, right? So we have time. We, we, we can play the long game. We correct one another because my mission isn't to make you happy right now. My mission is to anchor your joy in something that can never be taken from you. And that's to make you look more like Jesus. And when we are all on the same team, that's all of our goal, right? We want to make each other look more like Jesus. And there is joy in that. Y'all, <laughs> the world doesn't have joy like that. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, they can give you right now. They can make you feel good right now. But y'all, there's no joy that comes from that. Because when you wake up in the morning, and look, y'all, some of us have been there, right? Some of us have pressed those buttons. Some of you haven't, and that praise God for that. Don't press them. It's not worth it. Trust the people who have pressed them. You wake up in the morning and you are empty. You wake up in the morning and there is nothing fulfilling about what you just did. So you go out the next night and try to chase it again. And you go out the next night and try to chase it again. Church, when are we going to show the world that you don't have to chase? That there is a source of joy that you can tap into that's going to trump all of that stuff. The world doesn't want it because the world hasn't seen it. The world hasn't seen it because we won't live it. When will it stop? Gospel House, y'all, when will it stop? Do we want to be the church that shows people what God's love looks like? Do you want to be the Christ follower that shows the world what God's love looks like? If you do, then you've got to know where Jesus sets the bar. Right? This is where Jesus sets the bar in the story of the Good Samaritan. This, this, this story, the way that this Samaritan responds, right? That is God's bar. Jesus Christ, the gospel, his life, that is God's bar. Look at how well Jesus loved the world. Y'all, Jesus didn't compromise on truth. He told it like it is, didn't he? And not, not just to the Pharisees either, did he? The people who were lost in sin, the people who were doing it the wrong way, he shot straight with them. He didn't sit there and say, oh, it's okay, sweetie. Do you feel better when you do that? He didn't do that. He said, look, judgment's coming. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you want to get right, this is how you do it. It's through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Right? He didn't compromise on that. But yet, who was it that flooded Jesus' doors? Everywhere Jesus went. Well, the, it was the religious. False. What was those in the church? No. It was those who had, no. Prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors, Jesus loved people so well that those were the people who were drawn to him. Church, if we have a love that comes in under the bar, God sets the bar here, and we say, eh, we're going to sneak under it. We're going to come down here and just give people this. If we have a love that's coming under the bar, you'll be able to tell by the people that draw, are drawn to us. Whoa, that's not a measuring rod anybody wants to use, is it? Because when we plant churches, we do so in socioeconomically found or sound neighborhoods, 
right? Because we want to make sure we've got the money coming in. We want to make... It's not what Jesus says. It's not what Jesus did. So why are we putting it upon ourselves to do it differently than Jesus did and calling ourselves his disciples? What is the bar? We talked about this last week, maybe two weeks ago. I can't remember. Micah 6, 8, right? It's a pretty good bar. What does the Lord require of you? Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. And we see it here. This is the Samaritan's response. Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. It all starts with compassion. I think that this is the point where most of us need the Holy Spirit to do some uncomfortable digging in our hearts. We don't go to the world. We don't love our neighbors who are in the world. Very simply put, because we don't care. Right? They are going to hell, and we don't care. For some of our neighbors, we're kind of happy about that, aren't we? <laughs> Be real with Jesus. He knows how you feel anyway, right? But what's God say over and over in Scripture? Yeah, go ahead and hate your enemies. Pray for them to go to hell. Mm-mm. Love your enemies, right? That's the gospel command. We can't be happy about an outcome that breaks God's heart, no matter how much you don't like somebody. So you've got to pray for them. You've got to fast for them. You've got to do everything in your power that you can. If you know they hate you, don't go to them and talk to them about Jesus. Send somebody else, right? But y'all, here's the uncomfortable reality. (laughs) We got these relationships here on earth that are at odds, you're going to spend eternity with that person if you do it right. Right? It's going to be a really long and uncomfortable time to hate somebody. So fix it now. That's what Jesus is saying, right? Fix it now. Don't wait. You guys remember this one. It's the simplest definition of ministry. Strip it all away, you know, ministers and lay leaders and forget it all forget it all the simplest definition of ministry ministry responds to need that's it that's what ministry is but you can't respond to needs if you don't see needs and you can't see needs if you don't care enough to see needs so it all starts with compassion It's the most famous Bible verse in the entire Bible. John 3.16, right? Is that all the football games and everything? How's it start? For God so loved the world. Compassion. God's response to our greatest need all started with compassion. You cannot respond to needs if you do not feel that same compassion. God cared And God hasn't stopped caring. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how many times you've strayed. It doesn't matter how many times you have failed. God still cares. His response is still for you. And what was God's response? Jesus, right? Look at what Jesus did for you. We look at this story of the Samaritan and how the Samaritan responded. But look at this. Jesus came and healed and bandaged your wounds by the stripes that he took on his own back. Jesus was anointed with oil 
and, and drank wine while on the cross, all to prepare him for what? For his burial, for his death, all so that you could be anointed for eternal life with him in his kingdom. Jesus Christ loaded, not an animal, but loaded himself, bore the weight of your and my sin on his shoulders as he carried the cross up the hill, all so that you and I would never have to taste the wrath of God. And through the Holy Spirit, he has taken you in. He has called you his own, giving you the very power of God paid for with his blood to give you all that you will ever need to live this life to the fullest. Jesus Christ is the bar. The gospel is the bar. When God says, go and do likewise, that's the command, y'all. We're going to celebrate communion this morning. Um, you want to grab those? We'll pass those around if you did not grab a... Uh, little cup here. Just raise your hand if you didn't grab a communion set. We're getting there. Y'all, this is the bar right here, represented in this bread and in this juice. This is the bar. When God calls you to go and love the world, this is what he's calling you to do. To lay down your life, to give everything in your power, not to compromise truth, God's not asking you to make his message popular, right? That's not what he's asking. But he is asking that you would pull off any boundaries that you have on God. I'll give whatever, but up to this point, I got to draw the line here. Jesus says, I draw the lines. I draw the lines. You don't draw lines on how you love people. When I tell you to go to somebody, you go to them and you love them until I tell you to stop. There are no boundaries on that. Jesus Christ put no boundaries on his love for us, right? He didn't say, God, I'm just going to go down there and they're just going to spit on me. They're just going to deny me. They're just going to reject me. I'm going to die for this Jeremy Metzger character and he's just going to become a Christian and screw up over and over and over and over again, get distracted by the things of this world, refuse to walk in the Spirit, He's just going to trash my grace that I'm buying for him, Jesus, or God. That's not what Jesus said, is it? He went to the cross. He bore my sin and my shame. And he gave everything for me. Gospel House Church, I am done not giving everything for him. Right? Right? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, eat the bread that represents the body of Jesus Christ. On the same night after giving thanks, Jesus took the cup and he said, This is my blood poured out for all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant. I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. 
Church, this cup has a promise with it. The blood of Jesus Christ has a promise with it. But guys, we cannot be selfish. We cannot hoard this gift. Y'all, I want to drink it new with Jesus in the kingdom more than anybody else. But I, can't, I don't want to do it alone. And I don't want to just bring you beautiful people with me. We have got to bring as many people with us as we can. Because that's what he wants, right? So as we drink this cup, drink it as a renewal of your vow to him. As a renewal of your zeal to him to be about the father's business. To run after the things of God to a lost and dying world. Jesus Christ poured out his blood to respond to our greatest need. We've got to do the same. Church, drink the cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Christian, like it or not, you have earned yourself a reputation. We have earned ourselves a reputation of being people who sit on our hands. You heard it, right? I want to live my life now. I don't, want to, I don't want to have this kind of faith that tells me to wait to live my life. Gospel House, we can be the people who set this world on fire for Jesus. Not because we're great. Quite the opposite, right? We're like Peter. We're coming to Jesus and we're saying, as a body, as an entire church, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're coming to Jesus and we're saying, God, I can't do this. But Jesus, I see you. I see you do it so well. And I know that you've given me the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm done doing it my way. Not my will, God. I want you to take every breath of who I am from this moment on. I want you to direct every step, and church, we will come alive. You will come alive like never before. Anything you used to do to chase that thrill, I promise you, a thousand times over, that's what it is to come on fire for Jesus. And the world needs a church on fire for Jesus right now. We can be that church but we have to care we have to care enough to put god first in everything that we do that's the only way that we can show this world what truly living looks like we have to care enough to love each other inside the church well enough to speak hard truth to each other right to sharpen one another to encourage one another to do life together with each other so that we can sharpen one another and make each other look more like jesus and we have to care enough to respond to the needs of the dying world around us. Even if they don't believe it yet, we have to show them a love that they can never find on their own. We can't just talk about it, y'all. We have got to be about the Father's business. Gospel House, let's show our neighbors not that we're here to do easy love, right? Not that we're here to take the easy way out. Not that we're going to buy them Hallmark cards and cute little things. No, but that we're going to live life with them and respond, sit with them, listen with them. Respond to the needs. I'm excited about this, y'all. Are you excited? I have no idea what God is going to do. No idea. That's an uncomfortable place to be, isn't it? But I know that God's word promises it's going to be good. And I know that if Jeremy's out of the way, it's going to be even better, right? Because I'm not going to be in the way to screw it up. Who's with me? Let's show this world the love of Jesus. Amen? Thank you for listening to the Gospel House podcast. We pray that you were pointed to Jesus and will apply what you learned to look more like him each and every day. 
If you found today's message impactful, do us a favor and hit the follow button. Leave us a rating and write up a review to help others find our podcast. You can also help us by sharing the podcast so that together we can show the world that the gospel of Jesus Christ is enough. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Head to our website, www.thegospel.house connect, fill out the form, and someone from our Gospel House family will connect with you. God bless you, and remember, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always enough.